The year 1953, a plane touches down at Smithies Airport in Sydney. On board is an American named Lee Gordon. The Australian music scene will never be the same again. From then until now, these are the stories. Hey there, this is Josh Erstam and you're listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. This episode is on the legendary band The Atlantics and their instrumental classic Bombora. We speak with The Atlantics' lead guitarist Jim Scathedis. Sadly, the band's drummer Peter Hood passed away in September 2021. Our interview with Jim was recorded prior to Peter's death, so we only speak about Peter's drumming and that's why there's no mention of his passing. During the interview with Jim, there's a couple of technical issues with the odd word dropping out here and there, and the audio isn't as clear as we aim for. But hey, sometimes we're at the mercy of the tech gods, and we just have to take what we can get. In saying that, it's still great to hear Jim remembering the time when the Atlantics topped the charts, and he was in one of the biggest bands in the land. When it comes to surfing, Australia has always been at the forefront of the sport, and that's no different when it comes to surf music, with Sydney band The Atlantics leading the charge. The instrumental rock craze was inspired by the UK band The Shadows. There was shadow wannabe bands springing up all over the globe. We've already briefly touched on the instrumental Shadows craze in episode 28 with Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs, where Aztecs bass player Bluey Watson talks about how The Shadows inspired a generation of up-and-coming musicians. Rather than kids now wanting to be Elvis, suddenly every kid wanted to be Hank Marvin and become a guitar hero. While the Atlantics were unabashed fans of the Shadows, their own original and innovative sound saw the band stand out from the rest. Over the years, the Atlantics have gone on to gain their own international acclaim and are now ranked among the finest bands of this genre. The band formed around the beaches of Sydney's eastern suburbs in 1961. At this time, the eastern suburbs was a working-class area, 
far removed from the millionaire's row of today. The Atlantics went through a few early lineup changes, which included having various vocalists running the band, such as Kenny Shane and Eddie Moses, before they settled on the classic lineup with Jim, fellow guitarist Theo Pangilis, drummer Peter Hood, and bass player Bosco Bosnak. It's possible the Atlantic's original sound was due to the band members' families coming from all parts of the globe, including Greece, Yugoslavia, and Egypt. Adding to the United Nations theme of the band, Peter was born in Africa to Hungarian parents. With their families now settled around the eastern suburbs of Sydney, growing up, the guys all enjoyed the beach way of life. Well, I grew up in Coogee, and so did Bosco, and uh, we used to go to the Coogee Beach a lot. Peter lived in Bronte, but he used to come over to Coogee, and we spent a lot of our life on the beach. Not that we were board riders. Peter did ride a board a little bit, but uh, Bosco and I, and I mainly body surfed all the time. I mean, we lived so close to the beach, it was just the thing that everyone did, went to the beach together. Although once the band got going and rehearsals started, I think the beach took a back seat. The name The Atlantics conjures up thoughts of the ocean and pounding surf, which seems an appropriate name given that they'll go on to become Australia's most popular band during the surf rock era. While the synergy of their name appears to be a smart move by the band, it was actually just a lucky coincidence. Uh, the boys came up with the name in the very early days of the band. I hadn't joined yet, so I'm not sure if they had a name already yet or not. But they were driving to a gig one day and they drove past an Atlantic petrol station, uh, which was a brand of petrol back then. And I think uh, it was Peter who came up with the idea and said, hey, let's call ourselves the Atlantics. And they all agreed. Yep. So it turned out that it fitted us well. Except that it was the wrong ocean. <laughs> uh. Like most bands trying to make it into the big time, the Atlantics approached Festival Records hoping to sign a recording deal. The guys got to audition for the festival executives. However, it's fair to say that the record label's management may not have exactly had their finger on the pulse. Well, we auditioned for Festival Records. At that stage, we didn't have any original songs of our own, so we did a few cover songs. Um, probably Shadow songs. One of them was, in fact, the Shadow song called Theme from the Boys, which was the current number one song at the time. Anyway, a few days later, we got a letter from them saying, uh, no, thanks, don't call us, we'll call you sort of thing. But in the letter, they said, while well, they couldn't do anything with us at the time, they could certainly do something with one of our songs the theme from the boys. That's how on the ball they were. It was the current number one song and they had no idea. They thought it was one of our songs. <sighs> anyway, uh, we then moved on to uh, CBS and I think by then Peter had written Moon Man. So when Sven Liebeck, the A&R manager from CBS, heard us, he must have liked us because uh, they put us on contract and we went from there. So the first song we released was Moon Man uh, and we got to record that with the cover on the other side being uh, Dark Eyes, I think. It got some airplay and sort of dribbled into the top 40, so that was good. The Atlantic's debut single was Moon Man, and it was released in February 1963. 
Surf music is broken into two distinct crowds, the instrumental bands and the vocal acts, such as the Beach Boys, Jan and Dean, and of course, locally, we had the Deltones leading the way. Oh well, it's early in the morning and it's time to make a start And I put my poly surfboard on the rack upon my car I head down to the surfside where the waves are breaking fine I'm gonna catch a mountain but I won't go down the mine You gotta walk the plank, ride the hook Corner left and right and keep it nice and tight And now the time is drawing near, you're moving down the wall Now steady as she goes, you got your toes upon the nose And now you're hanging by, hanging by We've already mentioned that the Shadows was the leading instrumental group around the world. Uh, When we were growing up, the Shadows were the big band at the time. Nearly all the bands around Sydney were all doing Shadows songs. There were Shadow wannabe bands everywhere. They were also playing The Ventures and a few other American bands, but we didn't really relate to the American sound because they used a sort of bubbly reverb sound, whereas we were more into the shadows, which was more of a an echo sound. So we only ever used echo units in the Atlantics. We never used reverb units. Like everyone else, we were cloning the shadows, but... Once we started to write our own songs, we were able to develop our own sound. The UK band would often team up with Cliff Richard, but they also had their own enormous success. Incredibly, they've had 69 songs make the UK charts, 34 with Cliff and 35 of these hit songs as The Shadows. None of these songs was more popular than Apache. Dick Dale led the way, with the song Mizzaloo gaining a new generation of fans thanks to the movie Pulp Fiction.
And when it comes to surf rock, another classic is the Ventures Wipeout. As far as surf breaks go, they don't come any more famous than Hawaii's Benzai Pipeline. So it's only fitting that the Shantays pay tribute to the wave with their classic song Pipeline. While this episode pays tribute to the Atlantics, they're by no means the only Australian band to gain international recognition. Another classic band, the Denvermen, created one of the most blissful songs of the era, Surfside.
Okay, now that we've just taken a brief trip down memory lane, it's back to the Atlantic story. Passed over by Festival, they signed a deal with CBS Records and teamed up with producer Sven Liebeck. Adding to the multicultural mix, Liebeck had immigrated to Australia from Norway in 1960 and he was one of the most influential producers and composers of the time. They took the newly written song Bombora to their producer Liebeck and he instantly told the band they'd struck gold. When we took Bombora to Sven Liebeck and you heard it, he jumped up all excited and said, that's it, that's it, that's the hit, man, that's the one. And as it turned out, he was right. He was very good for us. He had foresight. We also recorded some of his compositions as well, and it was really great working with him. When Jim heard the Atlantics on the radio for the first time, it was a great moment. In the coming years, hearing himself on the radio would become a common occurrence. Yeah, that was so exciting, hearing ourselves on the radio for the first time. I can't remember exactly the first time I heard Moon Men. I think I was just driving along with Peter when we heard it. The jukeboxes were also exciting, you know what I mean? Seeing our records in the jukeboxes and seeing our name there, that was also something that I remember that stands out. When it came to hearing our songs on the radio... Yeah, of course, we heard Bombora a lot more than Moon Man, but it was still exciting hearing yourself on the radio. It was like, wow, that's us on the radio. Later on with Bombora, a few of the uh, bigger names, uh, bigger name DJs of the time, admitted that they were only playing it because they thought it was an American record. They said if they knew it was an Australian one, they probably wouldn't have played it. We're not sure if it was the weather gods or the music gods in control that day in April 1963. Whatever god was pulling the strings, something magical certainly took place. The band had decided to head to the Sydney Royal Easter show. However, a huge thunderstorm blew in and Jim and Peter decided to stay at home rather than go to the show. To pass the time, the guys decided to write a song and it was a decision that would change their lives. Yes, well, (laughs) we were going to the Easter show one, uh, one day and a huge storm blew up. Uh, like thunder, lightning, pouring rain and all that. So instead of going, Peter and I just sat around at my place and we decided to write a song. Even though he was our drummer, Peter used to also fiddle around with a guitar a lot and he was sort of learning to play bits and he could play some basic things. Over time, we did end up writing a lot of songs together. I can't remember exactly how we wrote it that day, but one of us would be playing, coming up with new chords while the other one was working out notes and vice versa. It only took us a few hours to write that, but that's exactly how it happened. Because of the thunderstorm, we didn't go to the Easter show and we wrote Bombora. While Peter helped contribute some guitar parts, it's his thunderous drumming that helped the band stand out from the rest. Yes, that's our sound, wasn't it? it uh, Peter came up with all the beats. Uh, I mean, the rest of us were guitarists and he was the drummer. So that sound was all him. I remember the day he came up with it, when he first played it, it was like an instant, wow, that's it. What kind of beat is that? That's perfect for, for this song. Um Because when you write a new song and show it to other guys in the band, they only get to hear it in pieces, if you follow what I mean. They don't hear it as a production or a full song. They just get it in bits and pieces. Then the song builds up from there. 
So it wasn't until we all started to play bombora together with that drumming that it started to make sense and started to sound like a great song. Jim's uniqueness as a guitarist is now celebrated and he was making guitar sounds that nobody had heard before. This was several years before the likes of Jimi Hendrix came on the scene. Layered on top of Peter's drumming is some amazing guitar work by Jim, Theo and Bosco. Uh, we were always experimenting with sounds and trying to come up with different things. We came up with a lot of innovative and different guitar sounds that weren't just guitar sounds. I was trying things like hitting the strings with bits of wood, bits of metal, scraping them, anything really to try and create some new or unusual sound. I even used my teeth on the strings, and I was doing that a long time before Jim Hendrix became famous for it. So, yes, uh, we were always experimenting with sounds. When you're a guitar band, breaking a string is always a workplace hazard. Uh, Yeah, in the old days, one of the worst things that used to happen was when we were playing live and I'd break a string. And boy, did I used to break a lot of strings. And it wasn't like today with guys having multiple guitars. Back then, you only had one guitar. So when I'd break a string, which was usually in the middle of a song, of course, I'd have to run off stage and then change the string while the other guys just kept playing and ad-libbing. Um, once I changed the string, I then had to tune the guitar by ear because we didn't have tuners back then either. So I'd be backstage trying to tune it while the others are playing. And once I got that done, I'd go back out the stage and would somehow try and get back to the original song. So it was really an an ordeal in those days, that's for sure. Jim's famous Fender Stratocaster wasn't initially the guitar he wanted. Despite their uneasy meeting, the two ended up making quite a combination. Yes, I've always had the same guitar, a 1961 Fender Stratocaster. I don't have it anymore. It's now housed at the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney. But yes, it was a Strat, a Dakota Red. In fact, I'd ordered a Fiesta Red one, just like Hank Marvin used to play, but when it arrived from America and opened it up, it was Dakota, not Fiesta. So I was really disappointed, but it still looked good and new and shiny and exciting, so I got over it pretty quick, I think. Um, It's the only guitar I've ever used in the Atlantics right through to 1970, and then again when we reformed in 2000, I used it again up until we retired in 2013. So it sure went and did a lot of gigs with me. We've been everywhere, man. (laughs) When Bombora was released in July 1963, it quickly hit the coveted number one spot on the charts. It was definitely exciting. I think the rate it was racing up the charts, it didn't take all that long for it to go to number one. Not that we were expecting it to go to number one, but everyone around us were all predicting it was going to be a big hit. Sven Liebeck and other people at the record label were sort of, I think, priming us to be ready and telling us it was going to be huge. So we sort of had that bit of expectation, but it was still so exciting to watch it go up the charts. In those days, uh, 
you'd have to rush out to get the weekly charts with the top 40 charts were always printed on paper like pamphlets or a flyer and you'd have to see what number your song was each week. Bumbora, I think, stayed on number one for quite some time. On some charts, it was number one for about 12 weeks, on others about eight weeks. Proving that there were no flash in the pan and that they were here to stay, the Atlantics backed up Bombora with the next single they released, The Crusher. Just like Bombora, the Crusher was headed to the top of the charts, reaching a high of number four. Then suddenly, the Beatles unleashed their worldwide domination. Uh, the Crusher entered the charts at something like number 30, and the next week it was something like number 20, and then going into number 10, and it was headed for number one, and all of a sudden, the Beatles arrived over a couple of weeks, and everything changed instantly. They took all the top spots in the charts, 
like one, two, three, four, five, and that was it. Basically, overnight, that ended that era of music, and a new and exciting era was born. In the early 60s in Australia, the recording process still hadn't caught up with the rest of the world. Bands were rushed in and out of the studio, and they recorded at a breakneck pace. Ah, yes, back in those days, we had to record an album in something like four hours. (laughs) Just rush in and rush out. That's how we recorded. Sometimes... We didn't even have enough songs, and so we have to make them up in their studio just to fill out the album. (laughs) I hear some of the songs these days and think, oh, God, what were we thinking? I remember how we used to, but then I remember how we used to have to make it up as we went. Yet in saying that, I've had people come up to me and mention certain songs, which I think are some of the worst that we ever released, but they say they really love that song and it's one of their favourites. So, God, who knows? It just goes to show you that everyone has their own tastes. The band would go on to team up with vocalist Johnny Reb in 1964. Regular listeners of the podcast may have already heard our episode on Johnny Reb and his Rebels. It's episode 18 and he was one of Australia's pioneering rock stars. We'll cover the Atlantic's Johnny Reb collaboration era in its own episode down the track but the Atlantic still went on to record further great instrumentals, especially when you consider that there was no overdubs when recording in those days. Yeah, it was interesting trying to come up with different sounds that fitted certain songs. It wasn't like just trying to come up with the sound effects or random noises. They had to have some sort of meaning to the songs we were trying to fit them into. Their song Shark Attack may not have had the chart success of some of their other hits, but the soundscapes the band were able to create were amazing.
Bombora was even used at the opening ceremony of the Sydney 2000 Olympics, and in one of the more memorable scenes no less. The song was the soundtrack when Kylie Minogue entered the stadium on a giant thong. The Atlantics didn't get to play the song live, but they did get to perform some gigs at the Olympics Athletes Village. Despite the continued success of Bombora, it hasn't always translated into massive royalties for the band. <laughs> yeah, we all thought we were going to be rich, but gee, wasn't that a disappointment? We got royalty checks from all over the world, but we got some good ones from the bigger countries, but you'd get some for like 10 cents or something from the smaller countries. In the old days, Bombora was a single which sold at 10 shillings or I think 10 10 and sixpence, something like that. So between the band, we would get like fivepence between all of us, which was like a penny each. If you compare that to today, it's probably maybe two cents each. Writers' royalties were better, but with the internet and downloading these days, writers' royalties have virtually dried up and they are now nearly non-existent. Musicians these days, I think most most of their money from gigs and pretty much nothing out of recording, although that's not strictly true. While they may have not received piles of gold for their music, the Atlantic certainly have gained worldwide acclaim. I had absolutely no idea we were ranked as high as we were or known around the world as much as we were. We were really big in Europe, particularly more so than America. We're still known in America, but in Europe we were really big, which totally took me by surprise. It's not something that I think about all that much, but it does feel good to know the Atlantics have had that sort of success and our music is well known as it is. The Atlantics have played plenty of memorable concerts over the years. Uh, Some of the gigs we did around Europe really stand out. We were really so well received there and there were some great shows. Another one that really stands out from the 60s was a big one that was held in the Lane Cove National Park. That was huge. We also supported the Beach Boys on tour, so naturally that was pretty big. Uh, We played with Chris Isaac and his band on tour, and that was great. They treated us so well, just like equals. That one was really memorable. They were such great guys. Oh, and another one of the best was the Long Way to the Top Tour. It went for something like two or three months, and every night we got to stand at the side of the stage and watch all these amazing acts over and over again. It was just fabulous. We got to meet bands that we had never met in our lifetime, like the Masters Apprentices and Chain and many others. Also, just getting to watch someone like Stevie Wright perform every night was great. I can tell you that when he was on stage, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. That tour was so well organised, it was just great to be a part of it. Okay, that's enough of the talk. Here's Bombora by the Atlantics.
Thanks for listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. Thanks to Jim for your time, and thanks to The Atlantics for the music. Hi, this is Molly. You've just listened to a podcast brought to you by Marcos Promotions, written and produced by my dad, Sheldon the Kangaroo Kip. And presented by Josh Urson. This is Molly Kidd saying to my good friend, Holly Kirsten, Hit it, girl!